This morning's reading comes from Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father or mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, well, good morning, Christ community. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Reed Kappel, and I serve on staff here at the Olathe campus, and it's a joy to be here with you all, and as Patrick said, happy Father's Day to you dads out there. Uh, it's good to have you here with us this morning. Um, as we kind of jump into our text this morning that, that Sarah read for us, I, I wanted to kind of share a phenomenon that, that we're probably all familiar with uh, in certain situations when, when things don't go as, as planned, there's, there's some kind of problem, and we, we attempt to, to resolve it, but, but sometimes in our efforts to add to it, to fix it, we end up making the problem much worse. Uh, this is true in things like cooking, you know, you, you overcook something, and so you add a lot more of an ingredient to kind of cover it up, and it just is way too salty or whatever it is, or you've got a pimple, and you add some more makeup, and rather than looking like a beauty queen... You look like you lost a paintball war or something. And it's just like, we just add so much and we just make things way worse. Or, uh, hypothetically, if you're a pastor on staff at a church in Olathe and you check on a woman who appears to be pregnant, say, hey, how you doing? And she's not pregnant, that's a bad thing. That's a bad, you're like, oh, and then you back up, you're like, oh, I mean, how's your pottery class going? That's what I'm referring to. Uh, and so now you're rude and a liar, and so you just keep making the problem worse. We all do this in various ways, shapes, or forms, but a classic quintessential example of this, if you remember a few years back, uh, there was a painting, a fresco painting in, in Spain uh, of Jesus, and it was painted on the wall around the 1930s, and, and this, this painting started to peel and flake, and so a parishioner of the church, an eight-year-old woman, decided to improve upon it and to bring back the original image. And what she created, what she created ended up being something that like haunts you in your sleep now, so you're welcome for that. But look, I mean, like, it's, 
Not quite exactly what the original was, but, but in her attempts to bring back, to improve upon this flaking painting, she makes it way, way worse. And now you all can't sleep tonight, so you're welcome for that. But, but we all, I mean, we all know of certain situations that come to mind where in our attempts to improve a situation, we end up making it way worse through our efforts. And, and, and this, is, this is true in so many ways of our life especially when it comes to ways that, of improving ourselves as people in general, but also as, as we think about what it means to grow as a follower of Jesus, that we think that what we need is to just add things to our life. And, and we think this because deep down we, we think that the problems of our lives are mostly due to our situations, our circumstances, and our environment. And, and while that's true, we do have kind of surface level problems that are legitimate and need attention. What we may not be so quick to recognize is there are deeper problems looming below the surface that either we don't want to see or we refuse to see. And so this morning, as we jump to Matthew 15, and if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. What I want us to see is that we tend to look at our problems from a surface level and because of that, our solutions to these problems remain only on the surface level. And as a result, they do nothing to ultimately remedy the problems of our lives. Again, we tend to think that the problems we face are just on the surface. But my question for us today is not whether or not we have problems in life. We all have problems. We all have relational problems. We have financial problems. We have sexual problems. We have first world problems. We have a lot of problems. But the question for us today is this. It's not whether or not we have problems, but are our problems the real problem? Are the problems we face in life that we would point to and say, this is frustrating, this is difficult, my life is challenging because of these things, are those problems truly our problem or is there something else behind that? And that's really the point that Jesus is getting at in his dialogue with the Pharisees. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 15. And what we're going to see this morning in Jesus' exchange with the Pharisees is just two things. The first is this, the rules we make. And the second is the problems we own. The rules we make and the problems we own. Those are our two big points and ideas for this morning. But, but before we jump into Matthew 15, let me, let me pray for us as we hear from God's word. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we pause to give you thanks for your word, uh, for the truth that it reveals. And so Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to, to enliven us, to reveal to us your truth. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So Matthew 15, the first thing we see here is this idea of the rules we make. And what I want us to understand about the Pharisees is that if you've noticed up until this point, uh, the hostility between Jesus and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, it's, it's increasingly becoming more and more hostile. And, and we see this in Matthew 15 where the Pharisees, they have come, they were sent from Jerusalem to go to Jesus uh, to basically confront him because he and his disciples were not abiding by the extra 
uh, special commandments that the Pharisees had created, which I'll talk about in a second. And so they go on more than a 30-hour journey to come to Jesus and confront him. So they are really committed to hating this guy, so much so that they take this road trip and confront him for not washing his hands. And so that is devotion to hatred. And so the Pharisees show up into Jesus, and they confront him, and they say, why do you and your disciples not hold to the tradition of the elders? And what they're referring to here is what is known as the halakha. And the halakha was, were essentially these extra credit commandments that the Pharisees or rabbis would create to supplement the teachings of the Old Testament. And so if the Old Testament didn't have enough rules in and of itself, the Pharisees or the, the rabbis would add these additional rules to ensure that people followed them correctly. And it was taught through an oral tradition known as the halakha. And so this, when the Pharisees say, Jesus, you and your disciples are not abiding by the tradition of the elders, this is what they're referring to. Jesus is not in violation of the Old Testament. He is in violation of these extra credit commandments, the rules that the Pharisees have made over time. And so we see this in verses 1 and 2. And then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And so, now Jesus is not saying, like, it's a bad idea to wash your hands before you eat. So, sorry kids, you still have to wash your hands. But that, he's not objecting to hygiene. What he is objecting to is this idea of the man-made rules that are placed on the same level as God's authoritative word. That is why Jesus is upset. Because the Pharisees have taken these extra credit commandments and placed them on the same level of authority and power as God's word. And, and that is like, in, in a smaller sense, that is like me going up to a guy like this and saying, hey, uh, hey, you work out? Yeah, yeah, I work out too. You know, like, like it's true, I mean, I, I exercise, but, but when I say, hey, you work out? Yeah, I work out too. I'm putting myself on a level with him that I should not be on, nor ever will be on, on any possible universe you could ever imagine. And so when I say, hey, you work out? Yeah, me too. I am equating myself to him in the same way Jesus is saying, look, when you are objecting to me, when you are rebuking me for not keeping to your extra credit commandments, you are saying that your rules, your extra credit rules that you have made are on the same level as God, and I take serious offense at that. That is why Jesus is upset. It's not just the rules themselves. It's not like he's objecting to washing your hands. He's objecting to the fact that they have taken the rules they have made and placed them on the same level as God's word. And, and the extra credit command that Jesus is actually um, objecting to is what, it's really crazy. If you read in verses three through six, Jesus says, he answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, and this is the halakha, this is the extra credit commandment. If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So essentially what Jesus is saying is that the, in the halakha, the extra credit commandments, the teaching was this, that you could avoid giving resources and finances to your parents to provide for them and care for them later in life if you made a promise to devote that money to the temple. 
And so essentially what the rabbis created was tithe evasion, essentially. You know, like we don't need to use this money for our families. We can give it to the temple. And who benefits from that? The rabbis. And so this is what Jesus is objecting to. You have created a law that not only is stupid and, and superficial, but it has actually violated God's law. And you have placed it on the same level as God's law. And this is why Jesus is offended. And even if you're not a Christian, you hear that you're like, these guys are jerks. I mean, this is a completely ridiculous rule to make up. But we have to be careful because we all do this in some way, shape, or form. We all have rules or values or a system of living that we place on a high level and interpret other sources of authority, rules, and values through. That we would say, yeah, yeah, there, there are these systems, there are these teachings, but, but really what is ultimately right, wrong, good, beautiful, true is determined by me. And for some of us, we would, we would identify as Christians, not because we have come to see Jesus as Lord and Savior, but because coincidentally, the teachings of Jesus line up very conveniently with what I already value and believe. And what Jesus is saying here is when you place your rules on the same authority as God's level, you are in a very dangerous place. This is his concern, and it leads to what C.S. Lewis refers to as the Christianity and phenomenon. In, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, you might be familiar with, it's a very interesting kind of form of a book, but it's, it's a dialogue between two demons. Uh, Screwtape, who is writing to his nephew Wormwood, advising him on how to tempt his human patient. And Screwtape suggests to Wormwood that this is what you do. What we want... Keep in mind, two demons here talking. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind that I call Christianity and. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. When this happens, when we live into this kind of Christianity and mentality, what happens is that Christianity simply becomes the tool, the conduit, the vehicle that we use to bring about our deeper agenda. That, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, but it's because it is actually a very helpful way to create a more moral society because I'm more interested in just being a good person. I, I like Christianity because it seems to line up with my conservative views about politics and society and culture. I like the idea of, of Christianity because it allows for me to hold to kind of an environmentalist view of the world. When that becomes the way we're thinking, we are making rules and placing our values on the same level as God's law. And that is what Jesus has serious concern with. You see, when we live into this kind of Christianity and mentality, when we make rules that we add to our lives, we can find ourselves as Christians saying something like, yeah, 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 you're, you're a Christian, but, but did you vote for the right guy? You know, you're, yeah, you're a Christian, but, but do you listen to the right podcasts? Do you read the right books? Do you subscribe to the right blogs? Do you support the right causes? Do you, yeah, you're a Christian, but do you live in the right part of town? Do you, do you spend time with the right kind of people? And, and we, we kind of assume Christianity that, yeah, following Jesus is a good character trait and quality, but it is only important so long as it allows you to do these other things that are more important. And so we have to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves the question, what is our Christianity and? For those of us who would identify as being Christian, what is that Christianity and thing for you? That you would say, yeah, you're a Christian, but do you have this? And, and there's, my guess is, for some of us, that word 
that follows Christianity in might be something like patriotism. And what I mean by that, hear me very carefully, I'm not, I'm not bashing our country, I love our country, patriotism is a good thing, we should love and defend our country, it is a good thing to die for one's country. But when our patriotism becomes the thing that we equate with our identity, we can find ourselves on the slippery slope of nationalism where we then degrade and devalue and categorize people based on the fact that they are not from here. And we need to be very careful that we do not equate our Christian beliefs with a particular way of viewing ourselves as Americans. For some of us, when, when, when Christianity and is followed with patriotism, we come to a place where we might potentially say that the only word that should ever follow the phrase God bless is America. And therefore, if you're not from here, there is a sense in which we can start to subtly devalue other people. That, that's why um, um, Russell Moore, he's the president of the Eth Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, and he puts this so well in talking about warning Christians from being this Christianity and patriotism view, and he says this, that we are Americans best when we are not Americans first. We are Americans best when we are not Americans first. And I think what he's saying is that we're guarding ourselves from a view of the world that might say, is, if you're not from here, then you are on a different level, you are of a different value, and we start to create categories of people's worth based on where they're from. And so we should honestly ask ourselves the question, what, what are those rules that we make? What are the things that we have added to our belief in Christ that we would say, yeah, yeah, you're a Christian, but have you done this, this, and this? Are you sure you're a Christian because I don't see these things that line up with my values? And so that should be the question for us. What are our extra credit commandments? What is our halakha? What are our made-up rules that we have placed on the same level as God's word? And this is not just a Christian problem. This is a problem for all of us because we all have certain values that we interpret all things through. That is the lens by which we say, this is right or wrong, this is good and true, this is beautiful or not. We all have values that we hold to personally and that we hold others accountable to. But it's also a problem for all of us because external solutions by adding additional rules, by adding certain things to our lives, external solutions only solve external problems. But if our problems are not the ultimate problem of our lives, then all of our external solutions will either be empty and hollow at best or harmful and misguided at worst. And I think this is what we need to consider when we think about what is the Christianity and in my life. Until we recognize this, until we recognize that our problems in life are not our ultimate problem, that there's something deeper we will find ourselves misdiagnosing our problem and thus missing out on the solution. Or, or to put it more bluntly, focus on the, on, on the outside of religious activity as the solution to our problems will keep us on the outside of God's grace. When our focus is just on outward veneer of religious activity, we will find ourselves on the outside of God's gracious acceptance. But we will never move past we will never move past this, this kind of hollow silliness of the rules we make that we all do in some way, shape, or form. We will never move past this until we recognize and admit to the problems we own. When we own up to the fact that we are the cause of the problems we see in this world. And that's, and that's what Jesus kind of turns to and really what he's building upon in, in chapter 15 here. 
as we continue on in the chapter, what we see is that it's not just wrong that the, that the Pharisees have added rules and put them on the same level as God, but that these rules are coming from a misdiagnosis. That's what Jesus is concerned about. It's like, look, you, you have all this activity and you're so concerned about cleanliness, guarding yourself from the evils outside of you, that you have missed the fact that the problem is not external and the solution's internal, but that the problems are internal and the solutions are external. And what we see is that the Pharisees are so offended and so upset with Jesus because he is critiquing their very, the very foundation of their religious framework and culture. And Jesus shows this in verses 10 through 12. He's trying to show, look, the problems that you have and the solutions you're providing to solve those problems are not going to work because they're coming from a place that has misdiagnosed the true problem of the human heart. In verse 10, Jesus says, And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when, you, when they heard this saying? Which I love. I mean, like the disciples are like, hey, did you realize like, you made those people upset? And like, I think Jesus knew what he was talking about. And, and the reason why the Pharisees are upset, like I said, is because Jesus has not just critiqued their rules, but he is completely objecting to and pushing back against the fundamental framework of how they view the world. That the problems are outside of us, the solutions are inside of us. Therefore, the solutions we must provide to remedy the problems of our life deal with the external And Jesus says, you have missed out on what the true problem is. You see, the Pharisees held to this idea, which led to creating the majority of the Holocaust was made up of cleanliness rules because they viewed the world as the problems are in other people and we need to guard ourselves from the problems of the world. And the reason these man-made laws are ineffective at best and harmful at worst, like I said, is because they come from a place of misdiagnosis. It is not what goes into our mouths, into our lives, into our hearts that creates the problems of our lives. It is what comes out of our hearts that creates the problems that you see in my life and the lives of others. We are the problem behind our problems. As as Pastor Tom says, our senior pastor says, that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. That that is where it is. We tend to look at the problems of the world and say "It's, it's in someone else, it's out there. And this is the very point of contention that Jesus is arguing for in verses 1 through 9. And yet, the disciples are still confused. They're like, wait, can you explain this parable? What do you mean by it's not what, what goes into a person that makes them filthy? Like, I don't understand. And so, and they're confused because they have been taught by the Pharisees all along. Like, the Pharisees have been their religious leaders their entire lives. And so Jesus comes along and is objecting to what they're saying. And so the disciples are a little bit torn here. And the disciples are confused, and if we're honest, we're probably a little bit confused with Jesus' answer to why the world is the way it is, because we don't want to admit that the answer to the question, what is wrong with the world today, lies in the mirror. We don't want to admit that. We don't want to own up to that. I mean, even though, like, if I were to ask everyone in this room, like, hey, are you perfect? Not a one of us would admit that. No one would claim they're without fault. And yet, When we answer the question, what is wrong with the world today? Nine times out of 10, the problem is other people. It's outside sources. Rarely is it an owning up to us as the source of the problems in the world. In his great little book, uh, Blind Spots, uh, Colin Hansen points this out to us very, very well, and he says this. 
He says that we, we find problem, you find problems at the end of your pointed fingers and solutions in the mirror. In reality, the finger pointed toward the mirror tells you where to search first for the problem. Now, if I'm honest, there is a part of me that, that probably is probably more powerful than, than I care to admit that says, if people were just more like me, the world would be a better place. If people just valued the things I valued, if they cared about the things I cared about, if they viewed the world I viewed it, if they had my kind of personality and temperament, the world would be a much better place. Now, I don't say that, but functionally, when I look at some of the problems in the world, I say like, man, if they just would have acted like I act, if they would have valued the things I value, the world would be a better place. Now, I'm not advocating that, like, we clone myself, like, that, that's the solution to the world, that's a terrifying thought. I think one read capital is too many, actually, but, but I, I'm glad that there are people in the world that are not like me. I'm glad there are people that like math. I'm glad that there are people that like working on cars. I'm glad there are people that don't scream when they see a snake when they're mowing the lawn. I'm very glad that those people exist. But if I'm honest, I think that if people were more like me, the world would be a better place. And I'm guessing there's probably part of you that thinks that, too. Even though we would say, oh, but I'm, I'm not perfect, I'm broken, we all have our faults. And yet, nine times out of ten, the answer to the question, how do we resolve the, the problem of the world? Well, the solution is with me, because the problem is outside. But this diagnosis of the problems of the world, it flies in the face of what Jesus is saying. When we say that the problem is external, the solution is internal, Jesus is saying, you couldn't be further from the truth. You have to understand that the reason why Jesus is so angry with the Pharisees is not just because of the foolishness of the rules they make, but it's also because of the blindness to the fact that they don't own up to the problems that they own. And in so doing, they keep on uh, avoiding and, and distancing themselves from the true solution. As Jesus goes on in verse 18 to say, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, it does not defile anyone. If we fail to properly determine and recognize and admit that we are the problem, then we will find ourselves distanced from the true solution. When we think that the problem is outside of us, we will keep the solution outside of us. And the problems will continue in our lives because our problems are not our problem. There is something deeper. Sure, we may own up to our piece of the, the proverbial problem pie, like, yeah, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm wrong, I'm broken, all that stuff. But again, when we're pressed, we honestly think that the problems of the world reside in those outside of us. But even when we do own up to it, we, we kind of justify our sin. We, we explain it away. Like, no, I, I know I'm broken, but we find ways to explain, justify, and give exception to why we are the way we are. They're like, no, no, I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not lustful. I, I'm a creature of passion. I'm a, I'm a creature of desire. I'm not, no, I'm not covetous. I'm, I'm a creature of drive. And, and, and by, by being motivated by what my neighbors have, it allows me to work better and I become a more successful business person or whatever it may be. And we justify our actions. I'm not proud. I'm confident. I'm a person of self-esteem. We justify and explain away our sin so that we're really not even at fault. 
the New York Times columnist uh, David Brooks, uh, in his book, The Road to Character, he talks about the importance of bringing the word sin back into our vocabulary as a culture. And interestingly enough, David Brooks is not a Christian. And he says something very, very helpful for us to consider. He says, when you lose awareness of sin and start thinking that deep down human beings are pretty wonderful, you lose the struggle of character building. Building character is not like being, a better, being better than someone else at a career. It's conquering your own weakness. But you won't make that effort if you lose a sense of what your weakness is and where it comes from. You see, when it comes to us admitting that we have problems, admitting that we are broken, we tend to stop at the what. Like, yeah, yeah, I have an anger problem, I have a lust problem, I have a greed problem, uh, I, I have a pride problem. We tend to stop at the what and we don't go deep into the why. And we just focus on the surface. And rather than exploring, but why do I have an anger problem? What is the problem behind this problem? Th- think of it this way, if, if you have a shellfish allergy, your greatest problem is not that your throat swells up. Your greatest problem is that you want to eat at Red Lobster for three meals a day. Like, that's your problem. You are desiring something that is destroying you. Just to put it simply, our allergy is not our problem. The allergy is not the problem. It's that we desire something that will destroy us. That is our ultimate problem, namely sin. As one author put it, sin is the suicidal tendency of the soul to turn in on itself. And even though we don't see this at times, every sinful action that we commit and are a part of is a means by which we are destroying ourselves and destroying the world we inhabit. But we don't see this because we, we tend to stay at the surface level just at looking at the what, what is my problem, and not asking the question of why. Our problems are not our problem, we are. Or to put it more pointedly, our sin is our problem. But we don't want to recognize that. It is not what comes into our lives that makes us broken. It is what comes out of our hearts that results in the broken world that we all live in. We are the problem behind our problems. We are what is broken with the world. And, and my, my guess is that as, as, we're, as we're talking about this, some of us are, are probably thinking about the, the events that took place in Orlando. And, and, and those events, the tragedy in Orlando is probably fresh in our minds and heavy in our hearts. And, and, and while, while we should lament and mourn and grieve with those who mourn, while we should pray for those who have lost loved ones, we need to also recognize that we are complicit in some way behind what happened. You see, there have been, I mean, if, you, if you've been on social media or any kind of news feed, you've probably heard a lot of different theories of why this happened. Well, it's because of gun laws, it's because of intolerance, it's because of religion. And while there may be some truth to, to those claims, what is not being said, at least on a large scale, is that the problem, that why Orlando happened, why this tragedy took place, is because of you and me. We're not hearing that, we're not admitting to that, we're not confessing that. Because each and every one of us has had hatred in our hearts. We all have hearts that create the darkness and brokenness in the world that we see. And yet, the problems of the world are always in other people. So yes, we should mourn, we should grieve, we should lament. But we should also repent. Because we are what is wrong with the world. We are what is broken with the world. And when we fail to see that... 
we will, we will fail to benefit from the solution that is offered to us that will truly solve the problems of our world. We must see that we are what is broken with the world. Or as, as G.K. Chesterton famously said when, when asked the question, what is wrong with the world today? He responded very simply, dear sirs, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. We need more of that recognition in our lives. So if, 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 we're, con- if we're committed to saying that the problems are outside of us, the solutions are inside of us, then the true solution will never draw near to us. If we're committed to saying that the real problems are outside of us and the solutions are inside of us, the true solution will never draw near to us. We must first recognize that our problems are not our problem, that that is not the ultimate problem, but that we are the problem. Our sin is our problem. You see, we we don't just need to be better rule keepers, that's not what it's about, but rather what, what the solution is is trusting in the better rule keeper we, we don't need escape from our problems. We need a brand new re- replacement of our heart that is producing problems in our lives. We don't need to just have some kind of polished heart. We need a brand new heart. And just like a heart surgery that takes place has to be performed by someone outside of yourself, the only way that we can experience a changed life, a changed heart, is through the work of what God provides and promises through Christ Jesus. Our heart is the problem, and therefore the only solution is to have a new heart. Not a cleaned up heart, not a better improved heart, but an entirely new heart. This is what what God promised in Ezekiel chapter 36. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see, this new heart is what Jesus provides. This is what the good news of the gospel is. is not just an improvement upon what is already existing, but an entire transformation of who we are. This is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus did not come just to polish off the dirt of our heart. He did not come to add more rules for us to abide by. He did not come to make us nice. He came to make us new, which is why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And in verse 21, he goes on to say, For our sake he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The good news of the gospel is this. This is my, one of my favorite, just most succinct explanations of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is this, that the lawmaker became the law keeper to save you and I, the lawbreakers. That is the good news of the gospel. We don't need better law keeping. We need to trust in the best law keeper. And when we understand that it changes the way we respond to God, it changes the way we respond to the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that because Jesus in his heart took upon our sin and his heart was pierced for us, we have the opportunity through faith in him to receive a brand new heart. That is the solution to the problems of our world. The good news of the gospel is that through Jesus, we have the blessed opportunity of not just having an improved life, but an entirely new life. So as, as we bring all this to a close, I just, I want to give us some time just, just to pause and reflect. Uh, my, my guess is, is that this sermon, it, it may have kind of struck a chord in you, um, potentially maybe even more of a minor chord than a major chord, because and, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's okay for us to feel the weight and the severity of the fact that the problems of the world 
that the darkness we see in the world is actually the reflection of our dark hearts. And what I think is just important for us to do is just to take some time to honestly reflect and consider and think about, do I see, do I recognize that the world is the way it is because of me, because of my brokenness, because of my tendency to love things other than God and to create a world where I am, in a sense, destroying myself because I'm loving the things that I was never designed to love ultimately. So as we prepare for this time of reflection, I just, I just want us to consider this, that, that as we look out into the world at the things that break our hearts, do we recognize that they are because of our broken hearts? As we look out on the things of this world that, that break our hearts, do we recognize that it's because of your broken heart and my broken heart? So let's just take, just, just take a moment just to reflect, to pray, to be honest. Do we see our reflection in the darkness of the world? Or do we see that the problems are outside of us and the solutions are inside of us? Let's take a moment to pray and I'll close this in a second. Father in heaven, as we, as we look out in this world that you have made, Lord, no doubt we, we do. Our hearts break at the evils and the atrocities and the injustices that, that take place by people made in your image and against people made in your image. But Lord, I ask, I ask that your Holy Spirit would show us that, that our problems in life are not our ultimate problem, but that we are. That the heart of the human problem truly is the problem of the human heart. Lord, as we look out at, at the things in this world that, that break our hearts, may we recognize that it is because of our broken hearts. It's because of our sinful hearts. May we own up to the fact that we are complicit in why the world is the way it is. Lord, may that weight lay on our shoulders, but at the same time, Lord, may you reveal to us that the solution to the problems of this world is far greater than the problems that we've created. Lord, may we see that the problems are within us and the solution, the glorious solution, is outside of us. As dark as our sinful hearts may be, the light of the gospel shines far brighter. And so, Lord, we grieve and we mourn and we lament and we pray with and for the friends and the family members, the community of Orlando, of those who have experienced this great tragedy. But, Lord, may we also understand that we all play a part in that, that the world is the way it is because we are broken. We thank you for the good news that the solution is far greater than our problems and that we cannot outsin your grace, Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.